Welcome to Half Hour of Heterodoxy, featuring conversations with scholars and authors and ideas from diverse perspectives. Here's your host, Chris Martin. Adam Dombey is my guest today. He's a history professor at the College of Charleston, and we'll be talking about his research on the statue of Silent Sam at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. The statue commemorated a Confederate soldier and was erected at a main university entrance in 1913. Dombey was a student at Chapel Hill in the early 2010s and researched the dedication speech of the statue, showing its connection to white supremacy. The statue was pulled down by activists in 2018, and there has been an ongoing legal dispute over what to do with the statue. We'll also be talking about Adam's new book, The False Cause, Fraud, Fabrication, and White Supremacy in Confederate Memory, published in February this year, which is partially about the lies told by the people who sponsored this statue, but mainly about lies told about North Carolina's history and the South's history after the Civil War, and the function of those lies. So you begin your new book with a reference to the statue of Silent Sam on the campus of UNC Chapel Hill, and you talk about your letter to the Daily Tar Heel, the campus newspaper, about that statue. Tell me a bit about that letter and how that changed how people at UNC viewed that statue. Yeah, it's a really good question. It's really how I, in many ways I came to this book. This was not a book I intended to write. It was a book that I sort of fell into. I first found the speech. I, f- I went to the archives as a, a young graduate student looking for to just write a semester paper, a term paper about the local Confederate monuments because I figured it'd be an interesting, uh, an interesting example to use and the documents were nearby and I went in the archives and I found this speech, this dedication speech that had really, uh, from 1913, that had been overlooked by historians largely. And in the speech, Julian Carr, who was an industrialist and sort of the leading Confederate veteran in North Carolina, he sort of led the veterans organizations. He um, was sort of the wealthiest Confederate veteran. He was also a very powerful political figure in conservative democratic politics of the time and an alumni of UNC as well. He spoke at the dedication and of the Confederate monument at UNC. And he, in it, he said essentially that this monument is a monument to the success of white men over African-Americans. He says outright, this is a, a monument to white supremacy, if you will. And, and then he says, let me tell you what I did to help ensure white supremacy. And he says, really, this is about the years after the Civil War as much as the years during the Civil War. So in other words, when Reconstruction was ended is what he was talking about. He said, let me tell you what I did to help. He says, I horsewhipped, and then to quote him, um, a Negro wench until her skirt hung in in tatters. So he was bragging about whipping a woman for trying to assert, assert her independence and for publicly maligning a white woman, basically. She had insulted a white woman, and so he beat her um, with a whip. And this was something he bragged about. Um, and before this point, the monument was already uh, controversial, if you will. Um, people would point it out that this was a monument to a slaveholder's republic. People who fought to maintain slavery. The debate was not new, but it was sort of um, a fringe debate. It, it came up every couple of years, but it wasn't um, a major issue on campus in the way that it would become one. Sort of a central issue that the chancellor started paying attention to. It would show up in the Daily Tar Heel occasionally. Well, 
as always, another letter shit came up and said, this is a, a monument to slavery. And someone replied saying, this monument has nothing to do with white supremacy. And me being very naive at the time and not fully comprehending, I think, the impact this monument had on especially students of color and faculty of color thought, well, this is a chance for me to use my research to teach some people about Jim Crow. Um, that's really because the monument went up in the Jim Crow era. And so the monument was really celebrating the success of Jim Crow is what Julian Carr had been saying, right? The overturning of reconstruction, the institution of white rule was what made this monument possible in his mind. And I said, let me just put a letter out there saying, here's what they said at the dedication. And then people, maybe we'll get a, a historic sign in front of it that will let people learn about Jim Crow. This will be a great teaching tool. And at the time, like I said, I really was naive on sort of what, what was to come and also the impact this monument had on students of color because I hadn't really talked to them yet. And uh, in, in time, I would come to realize uh, the negative impacts this monument was having on campus and the growing negative impacts it would have as the monument became a flashpoint that would attract white supremacists actively to campus uh, that were armed. And, we, and that happened that they had armed white supremacists showing up on campus to try to protect the statue. And that, that sort of was, to me, that the, meant the monument had no choice but to go at that point. Once you have um, students not feeling sa- literally not feeling safe um, in the immediate vicinity of that monument because of armed men, it's, it's a done deal. You can't have it on campus anymore. Um, but at the time, I thought, we're going to teach people. And so I sent out this letter. Here's what they said at its dedication. And it shifted the debate in a way I didn't expect. And, it, and I, I want to make clear it was really the activists who who did the work here. I just put the research out there and they ran with it. They did the job of educating people. They would stand out there on game days. They would write letters to the editor um, at various newspapers. They would talk to reporters. They would put up signs. They would have protests. And they educated people about this speech. And they said, this is the, the debate shifted from being one about, is this a monument to slavery to, is this a monument about white supremacy? Which is a subtle but important distinction. And when I first found that speech, no one really was, no, no faculty member was talking about removing Silent Sam. If you talk to any faculty member at the history department at the time, they were like, it's not an issue we need to worry about. There are bigger things. By the time the monument was torn down by students, over 10 departments had passed resolutions in which the you know, faculty in those departments had called for the removal of the monument and laid out why they felt it should be removed. And each time it involved this speech. And so in a way... Um, the activists really took historical research. And this is a great example of how student activists can take the research of their professors and use it um, to change their campus. And so the result of that research not only has led to the removal of a monument uh, on UNC Chapel Hill's campus, it also led to the renaming of two buildings in Durham, including one on Duke's campus and one uh, that was in the Durham school system uh, that were both named after Julian Carr. And so it was, it was, their sort of activism as well that made me realize this was an issue that mattered today. That this was an issue that was worth bringing up and led me to write the book. And so this, um, this speech has really shifted it and, and led to, by I'd say 2017, there was not local support for the monument. The local mayor wanted to remove, the local city council wanted to move, the faculty of UNC Chapel Hill wanted to remove, Carborough's, uh, you know, local government wanted to remove. And so sort of everyone around it locally wanted it removed. The state didn't want it removed. And so it was only a matter of time until its removal, because a monument in a community that doesn't want it will eventually be removed either legally or extra legally. And in this case, it was 
extra legally because legal means had been removed by the state legislature. And tell me about who Julian Carr was and what you discovered about him in the course of this book. So Julian Carr was a industrialist. He's been celebrated by some historians for his help developing the economy of North Carolina. Um, we might call him a job creator in today's today's sort of political discourse. He was also a Confederate veteran, and he had mills. He was in, heavily involved in numerous industries, including tobacco and uh, textiles. He had numerous mills um, around North Carolina, and he was, he was a millionaire. He was one of the richest men in North Carolina, uh, if not the richest. Uh, he was a he lived in Durham, North Carolina. He was he had been at UNC during the Civil War uh, before being conscripted, and he had um he was also a philanthropist. He gave a lot of money, and his his philanthropy is often celebrated. He gave he helped save Duke University uh, with his philanthropy at one point, which as a UNC graduate um, is questionable whether that's a good thing or bad thing. Of course, but um, the he also gave money, though, included to uh, African-American schools, uh, historically black colleges. Uh, those That philanthropy, though, of course, came with a catch about what was being allowed to be taught and also that he got to give speeches at uh, graduation ceremonies and whatnot. And so he's he did help shape North Carolina, but he also shaped the memory of the Civil War in North Carolina. He was the leading Confederate veteran. In the state, he led the local, the statewide uh, veterans organization. He also would rise to lead the national United Confederate Veterans Organization. So he was sort of the leading Confederate veteran. He spoke at more dedications, I think, than anyone else that I've ever been able to find looking at numerous dedications. So he's he's constantly being asked to give speeches. And he was also a major player in conservative Democratic politics. He runs for Senate in 1900, and he pushes really a... Um, an agenda of white supremacy is clearly in his agenda as he's pushing these um, these policies. And so this speech that he gave has made has led people in the last, oh, I'd say, um, decade to reevaluate whether or not Julian Carr is really worth celebrating or if his his legacy is more complex, if you will, because he really is, he is a complex figure in that he, he is devoted to white supremacy and he spends a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of effort. He buys newspapers and makes sure they publish white supremacist uh, articles. He, he buys numerous newspapers and basically gives them to uh, a former Klan leader so that he can publish uh, white supremacist rhetoric. And so his he run, when he runs for Senate, he runs on the platform of a white, the white man shall rule or die is his sort of platform. He, he loses because he's considered too concert, uh, too moderate on racial issues. He's too, not, he's not racist enough, basically. Um, and so that's why he ends up losing his, his Senate campaign. But despite this, he is a, he's sort of a major player, um, in the politics of the time. And he, um, he helped shape tw- early 20th century North Carolina in ways that we've often missed. And on a larger sense, do you feel like we sometimes miss the purpose of monuments because we don't find, uh, we don't simply look at the speeches or the people who who put them up? Yeah, I think we often do miss monuments. And I think in some ways that's by design. 
I mean, I think the idea of a really effective monument is to be subtle in some ways, is that you you sort of accept the message of that monument, that this is somebody worth celebrating without even realizing you're accepting it, right? The walking by it daily and not thinking, is this a monument we should have? Should we celebrate? It just becomes, oh, there's a monument to Confederate soldiers. Confederate soldiers are worth celebrating. Um, it's sort of this subtle daily uh, interaction with it where it seems like it's part of the background is what makes monuments in some ways effective. And so I do think that um, we often ignore the purposes of monuments. They're not explicitly stated usually on the monuments, all of the goals. that it, When you think about, and this is also why monuments don't teach us history. People say, oh, you're trying to erase history. Well, it's like, what history do I look? I learn from looking at a monument that says duty is the sublimest word in the English language? Um, that te- teaches me very little history. It teaches me that right. somebody wanted to use a trite phrase that duty is the sublimest word in the English language, um, which is a sort of meaningless drivel. Um, mm-hmm. And so I, I do think that it does. Uh, monuments can be subtle. So your book is not entirely about Julian Carr or the statue. And uh, the, the title of your book, again, is The False Cause. False is the key word there. So your book is largely about not just the speech, but some of the lies in the speech. So tell me about how you uh, tell me a bit first, more generally about how you investigate lies and whether there was an intent to deceive. Like, what yeah. evidence do you as a historian use? Yeah, this is a, a section. It was a fundamental question, actually, in the peer review process. Interestingly, when um, one of my reviewers sort of objected to my use of the word lie. And so I did have to clarify. Actually, I did have to write some rewrite the introduction mm-hmm. in ways to clarify what I meant by lie. And because lies, in theory, have intent. Right. And and so is this just a misstatement? Is it a falsehood or a lie? Right. And this is sort of a fundamental question we have today. A lot of times when we're dealing with current politics is is the president lying or is he just misstating um, something? And and the reporters have struggled with what to call misstatements. And I, I think. Listening to some of the of the reporters who are dealing with this helped me sort of guide me on this actually in that if it's by itself, it could be understandably a mistake, but when it's continual, when you have a continual trend of constant misstatement, even when it's called out, then it becomes clear that there is either a lie or a general, if not mendacity, uh, a sort of uh, a disinterest in accuracy. Um, And so for me, it was often very hard to establish when something was a lie and when something was just a falsehood. And what I realized was that the repeating of someone else's lie, whether known as a lie or not, often has the same impact as a lie. And so whether something becomes a falsehood is less important than whether the person who's repeating is a lie. Because what we do know is that when Julian Carr stood up there and he, and and said, this is how many men went from the University of North Carolina, he knew he'd made the numbers up because he'd made them up the week before. And so what it requires is deep research. And so you have to sort of remember that there are other people who are contradicting and calling out the lies that Carr is saying at the time, although he ignores them. And he frequently responds to in some cases and other times he'll respond to them to say, you know, they're wrong. And the fact that he's saying they're wrong shows that he knew there was this counter narrative, right? So the very act, but I don't know that lies, when we talk about lies, he's not necessarily trying to fool anyone. 
I think in some cases, these lies are everyone knows their lies, but it's the act of lying and being able to get away with it is a show of power. And we see something similar in modern politics, according to people like Masha Gessen, um, who sort of analyzed uh, Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump and the way that they lie is that to their supporters, the fact that they can say this lie and no one can call them out on it is an expression of power. And so Mm -hmm. for me, when we talk about historical memory, which is what I am a scholar of historically or in the past, scholars have really focused on the selective aspects of it. And what I come in and say, all right, so selective memory, right? You have what's remembered and what's forgotten. And both are equally important when you're trying to understand how historical memory functions. And sort of what I like to think of as, as one of my contributions is that I think there's a third element that we need to pay attention. What's made up? What's absolutely false? And whether it's made up on purpose or not almost is incidental. It almost doesn't matter on some level. It does in the end at times matter, but it can be uh, that the intent is almost less important than its effect. And the way that by looking at places where people have lied, where these falsehoods are created, where misstatements are repeated again and again, despite people probably should have known better than to restate these anecdotes or stories. What we see is that these falsehoods are covering over the most troublesome aspects of the past for the individual's lying. And so it actually sort of highlights what's most important in some ways when trying to understand how people are dealing with and reconciling the past with the present and what is needed in the present. Because memory is always about the present. When you look at a monument, you're not just looking at especially a Civil War monument, it doesn't really reflect the war so much as it reflects the time the monument's put up. And so what was needed at the time the monument put up, you can really discover by looking at where things are fabricated, whether purposefully or not purposefully, um, is almost incidental. Right. Yeah, it is interesting for me. One of the first books about U.S. history I read when I moved to the U.S., uh, I think I read it maybe five years after I moved here, was Lies My Teacher Told Me, which is Classic. mostly about uh, high school history textbooks. And uh, it seems like universally, not just in America, high school textbooks sanitize history so they're not too offensive to any any of the parents involved and, and end up lying to students about things. Uh, that I definitely think- does not seem like an American thing. Yeah, I think that's actually a, it's a great, it's a, it's a classic book, right? And I, yeah. I think a lot of historians know it. But, um, one of the things that's really interesting about how we do high school history and elementary school history, and this is ongoing fights, is that it's determined not by historians. It's really determined by political figures. And, and that's really shaped, um, and, and certain states have an outsized impact. For instance, Texas, California, and Florida, because of the size of their population, Right. Um, their standards matter. And Texas's actually standards are perhaps one of the most important and controversial in that the Texas State School Board has a surprisingly large amount of power in dictating what will be in state uh, curriculum for all the public schools in Texas. And because it's such a big state with so many people, that influences what other states end up having to buy. Right. Because right, they might yeah. not make a New Hampshire edition of the U.S. history book, but they definitely make a Texas edition if you're a textbook manufacturer. And so for years, for instance, the Texas School Board was led by a dentist. And and I always tell my, my students this. I say, you know, will you let me pull your teeth? I'm a doctor. And they always say no. And I'm like, well, then why are you letting a dentist determine your history? Um, and, and so the way that we, history is often viewed, and we see this fight pop up 
every decade or so. Um, we saw it in the 90s. We saw it more recently with the AP curriculum redesign that of what should be included and what is the purpose of a high school history class. And a lot of people think it's uh, to instill sort of civic pride or patriotism or nationalism. Um, and that requires you to erase a lot of history. And and the original sort of, in the American case, the people who were really the f- the first to really try to control curriculum is the United Daughters of the Confederacy. And they're wildly successful in controlling what goes in textbooks in the South. And so um, I think it's an important aspect for us to, I think history can still be exciting. Um, and I think in some ways memory allows us to find the most exciting parts by looking at those lies. I think in some ways lies are um, a way to get students thinking about, wait, I learned this wrong. And, and there's nothing more sort of compelling to a student than telling them what they learned as a kid was false. Uh, because then they want to know, why did my teachers tell me something false? And that, to me, I've noticed is something that that Americans do want to hear about. Uh, learning that what they learned was a lie is something that draws them in. They care about learning the truth. And when they find out that everything they learned in high school or some of what they learned in high school was false, they immediately want to know, why was I told something that wasn't true? Why was I lied to? That's something that people latch onto when they were lied to. People are offended by it and they want to know why. And it's a way to get students thinking about historical memory, which is one of the reasons why, from a teaching standpoint, I, I really like this approach. And I think it's an effective approach to sort of talk to students about lies because I think it it's more, it's easier to grab onto than just, well, this is selective and what we focus on, which is much more nuanced in some ways, an important aspect of memory. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about the teaching side, bringing out those really clear examples where, right, this has just been lied to you. It's not just erased. Right. It's not just selective. It's straight up fake. It's false. Students want to know why that happened. And it's a great window for teachers to then allow students to start thinking about these issues of how does historical narrative influence our current politics and how does it shape our current politics? How does it shape um, who we are, our identity as people? Because that's really what this is all about is that when you're talking about historical memory, it's, it's all about the present. It's always about these present. These lies are not about be just being remembered fondly. They're about political power. They're about controlling modern North Carolina in the case of the book. And, and so I think lies are a, a great teaching tool as well as a great analytical tool. Right. And the sciences, I, th- I think maybe fraud is a little more common than lies. And one, pe- one way to get students interested is by telling them about stories of fraud or yeah. telling them about story experiments that have gone down in the canon as being conducted honestly, but actually being done a bit fraudulently. Like this, the Stanford prison experiment is right. one that's become very controversial now for that reason. Or, or the classic like, uh, <laughs> one with autism, the uh, where the uh, the autism vaccine study. Um, right. The, yeah. It's one that, that one, you yeah. can get into really well. I know with my students, when we talk about sort of what sources you trust and we talk about citation counts, I always tell them, like, don't mm-hmm. trust the citation count uh, because the citation count just reflects whether something's cited. It doesn't reflect whether it was cited to say this is a good example or a bad. Right. Uh, and so the one, of, one of the most cited studies in if you go on Google Scholar and look at citation counts is the autism uh, vaccine connection study that the Lancet revoked. But because everyone who writes about vaccines now has to cite that to say this is incorrect. Uh, it has right. a massive citation count. 
is, yeah, that's sort of a perverse uh, effect of, right, of and, being a uniquely bad article. But getting back to UNC Chapel Hill, yeah. I do want to talk about the time the statue was erected. So were UNC professors at the time, and this was an era where many white people in North Carolina were voting for the Republican Party, which was the anti-slavery party. So it was not, you point out, it was not a homogeneously right. pro-democrat the, In the 1890s, the it's not. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, yeah. You, the faculty um, at the time. So were UNC uh, faculty, yeah, were they were they indifferent to the fact that there was a monument to a Confederate soldier being erected on their campus as opposed to in a public square in the city? You know, that, it's a really good question. And it's interesting because in some ways this monument serves both purposes because it is actually just across the street from the post office slash courthouse as well, which is across the street. So it almost serves both purposes. Um, we don't 100% know faculties. Uh, reaction to it. Um, we we know that the administration basically ensured it happened. Um, and it's, it's the fundraising, and this has been a legal issue more recently. Uh, most of the money is not raised by the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which is the standard in most Confederate monuments. So this monument's a little unique in how the money was raised in that the college president does most of the fundraising. And in the end, the college actually pays for the last um, $500 or so of it the president pays out of pocket and then gets reimbursed by the college because the UDC fails to live up to its side of the bargain. They were supposed to give one third. And the fact that this sort of fundraising was distinct actually led to um, this ongoing lawsuit over whether or not the sons of Confederate veterans can have ownership of the statue. And the court found that they can't uh, because mm-hmm. it doesn't belong. It never belonged to the UDC, they ruled, which is um, it's been sort of a fascinating legal battle. But getting back to this question of the professor at the time, um, I suspect they knew. We don't know for sure. I mean, the professor that I'm most interested in when I when I think about this topic is the history department, right? Because they're the ones that um, should know better. And we do know who's in the history department at the time, and it includes um, a guy named Hamilton. Um, and Hamilton was the was a Reconstruction historian. He wrote the book Reconstruction in North Carolina. He was a student of William Dunning, and and so Professor Hamilton, uh, who's Hamilton Hall is named after was himself a white supremacist who really espoused many of the same views as Julian Carr. And so my expectation, we don't know if he was there at the dedication. I wish I could find letters proving he was there. My expectation is he probably, I would not be surprised if he was there. Um, Uh If he wasn't, I think he had no problems with the story that was being told and the lies being told. He would write similar stories in his books about African-Americans uh, not being fit to rule and that, you know, the Klan as a force for good, right? This sort of distorted history that pretends uh, Reconstruction was a terrible period of corruption and misrule and that whites fixed everything by disenfranchising African-Americans is uh-huh. is one that he contributed to. And so I suspect the faculty were okay with it. Uh-huh. And you also talk about how um, there's this connection between elementary and higher education and the lost cause myth. And that, that's one of the references to the, the phrase, the lost cause in your myth. I mean, in your, the phrase, the lost cause in your book. Um, you point out in your book that that's one of about four different narratives that have existed since the Civil War. Um, tell me a bit about how those four narratives developed. I'm asking that because I think people outside history aren't familiar with this classification scheme. Yeah. And, and, and it's, there is, 
there's different ways of classifying it. Um, if you ask David Blight, you get one. If you ask Carolyn Janney, you get another. If you ask me, you get a third, right? And that's sort of the nature of memory. Memory is sort of a fluid thing. It's not ever stagnant or clear where the boundaries are. But they have, you have, do have basic narratives. Um, and I'll, I'll just sort of lay them out real quick. The Lost Cause, which the book is most concerned with, is really a narrative put forward by white Southerners, primarily pro-Confederate white Southerners to be specific, and Southerners who espouse the Confederacy as an honorable system or an honorable organization that fought not for slavery but for states' rights, that slavery was a positive good, and it's full of these sort of mistruths, and it was a narrative used to uphold white supremacy again and again throughout history. You also, though, have other narratives. You have a narrative of white Northerners up north who are saying, no, this is not... um, the war was about saving the union and, and we're the heroes of the story. And whether that's a reconciliationist or a bitter narrative depends on the historian you ask. Um, and then you have in the um, South, you also have an African-American memory and what, what David Blight has called an emancipationist memory, a memory that remembers the war as a war for freedom, a war that ended slavery, a war that is worth celebrating the outcome of. And that this was a glorious outcome, not a lost cause, but a one cause, if you will, as Barbara Gannon would put it. And the this sort of alternate narrative. And then there's this other narrative that I think has largely been ignored, which is a white Southern unionist memory, which is distinct from an, an African-American unionist memory. You have African-Americans who have a distinct memory of the war, but you also have a Southern unionist memory of the war of, of white Southerners who did not support the Confederacy. And there's we know, for, for instance, that um, at least 100,000 white Southerners fought for the United States military. And to give that some sort of scale, 100,000 white soldiers is larger than the Army of Northern Virginia ever was at any one point, which is uh, Robert E. Lee's army. So that's a massive shift of manpower. And what? why are these guys not remembered? And there's also numerous people who just are sort of ambivalent, and they often get lumped in as unionists, but often they just don't want to fight themselves. Um, they end up getting so those, largely erased. Uh, so, so were those soldiers mostly from the Appalachian region and what became West Virginia? Um, yeah, so they were from all over, um, to be honest. Um, the Appalachian region perhaps contributes um, more of them. Um, West Virginia, of course. Uh, Tennessee contributes a lot. But you also have them in Mississippi. Uh, pretty much every state, with the exception, I think, of South Carolina, contributes at least one unit of white Southerners. Um to the United States military. They're often used as uh, sort of scouts and home guard if they're actually units. But then you also have white-born Southerners who join up with, say, a Maryland regiment. They come across the border and join a Maryland regiment, or they, they come north and they join a, a, a Pennsylvania regiment, right? So you have some guys who, who perhaps weren't born. I mean, we often think of, we often talk about how many of the West Point graduates who were in the U.S. military, resigned and joined the Confederate military. Well, mm-hmm. plenty of them didn't. Uh, some of the leading generals of the Union Army were Southern-born and chose to stay with the, to keep their oath, to not break the oath that they took when they were at West Point to defend the country. Um, General Thomas is perhaps the most famous, who in the Western theater is sort of crucial. And and so this sort of um, idea that white Southern, all white Southerners were Confederates at, in any area is really inaccurate. Um, and there's quite a bit of, and of course, there's also black Southerners that are often forgotten. Um, the, so is that the fourth narrative? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the 
depending on how you count them, right? You have this, yeah. this emancipationist memory that um, really celebrates the USCT, the United States Colored Troops, which were African-American troops that made up 10% of the Union Army by the end of the war. Um, we're talking somewhere in the order of uh, 180,000 USCT soldiers, and so 80% of whom were probably formerly enslaved. And when you start thinking about those numbers, again, this is another shift of massive manpower. This is manpower that couldn't have been used as soldiers, perhaps, by the Confederacy, uh, because the Confederacy did not allow black troops. But it was manpower that could be used to build trenches, to keep the crops running so that you could uh, and to do other sorts of labor that would allow more white men to be in the front lines. And so it's another shift of labor from the Confederacy to the Union. When you start thinking about the amount of men that are being shifted, you're talking somewhere in the order of, of over a quarter million. And and that's a lot of people uh, that are being shifted over. It makes up somewhere in the order of probably, um, oh, oh, I would guess, over, I'd have to do the math, but I, over over 15 to 20% of the Union Army you're talking about, which is, um, is a substantial number of people. Um, and so would have undermined the Confederacy's war effort in a way that is often forgotten uh, today because unionists have been largely forgotten. They've been erased to this as part of the lost cause that recalls all whites supporting the Confederacy because in the early 20th century, it was convenient to remember all whites supporting the Confederacy because it justified everyone voting for white supremacy now. It justified uniting whites as an electoral group and convinced people to vote in a certain way because supposedly whites had always worked as a group, even though they hadn't. Right. Right. And that raises the issue of identity, which is a good place to end this. You point out that narratives are about creating identity. So it's a, it's not just a historical issue. It's a psychological and sociological issue here. Um, changing narratives involves getting people to sometimes uncomfortably uncover things about their identity. So how do you cope with this when you're teaching? How do you ad- address this issue that people's identities might be based in false narratives. I mean, I think I, I've had numerous students um, who did, they do struggle with this. This is not something that isn't, isn't a very real um, occurrence in the classroom that anyone who teaches um, a large number of students from the deep South are going to run into. Um, and perhaps elsewhere as well. I mean, I grew up learning aspects of the lost cause and it wasn't until I got to college that I was suddenly, my mind was blown when I learned much of what I'd learned was false. And it's how I became a historian in some ways. It's part of my own own story. But um, the key here I've found is primary sources. Um, and and it's a lot easier with students than it is with older folks. Um, yeah. uh, people who are in their in their 50s oh. and 60s who spent a lot, you know, much of their life identifying because of their ancestors are mm-hmm. have a very different reaction than someone who's in, say, their 20s and is still figuring out who they are in college. And they're reachable in many ways, and you can talk to them. And when you put the primary sources in front of them, this is sort of what I find works best. By putting the primary sources in front of students, by showing them, here's the articles of secession that say, we're seceding because of slavery. It's very hard to disagree with them if you're not already heavily tied. And and that's the beautiful thing about college students is that most of them their sense of identity is shifting as it is already. And so you have a chance to, to teach them really good history and have them sort of question um, who they want to be and whether, um, whether they, how they want to shape their identity. And I have a lot of students who I have, I have some students who were used to be members of uh, the United Daughters of the Confederacy uh, themselves as children. Um, 
and they choose um, and they, they struggle with it and they end up getting uh, deciding to apply for PhD programs ultimately and going on to uh, master's programs to to study history, specifically to study the lost cause um, as as it can draw them in. But primary sources, I mean, you can't you don't have to take it from me that the war was about slavery. Me telling you that isn't very effective. Me saying here, let's let's just look at what South Carolina said. That's effective. Well, Adam, thank you for joining us on the show. It's been great having you. I'm sorry you can't do a typical book tour with this book. I hope you're able to do that at some point, but I appreciate you doing this interview. Well, I appreciate you inviting me. It's it's great. I'm happy to reach, you know, another audience um and uh and hopefully uh others can can sort of take the uh the lessons of this book in their own work um and and expand upon it because I think it is it's something that right now looking at the ties between lies and white supremacy Um, is a really powerful set of tools and one that is a really important set. Adam's book, once again, is The False Cause, Fraud, Fabrication, and White Supremacy in Confederate Memory. It was published by the University of Virginia Press this year. You can learn more about him at his website, adamhdombey.com, and follow him on Twitter at adamhdombey. If you have any comments about today's episode, you can contact me at podcast at heterodoxacademy.org or tag me on Twitter at chrismartin76. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on iTunes because it helps other people find out about the show. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Heterodox Academy. Find us online at heterodoxacademy.org on Twitter at HDX Academy and on Facebook. This podcast is for informational purposes only and doesn't represent the views of Heterodox Academy.